Well, greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole, and I'm glad you've chosen to tune in to us today. I've got two special guests with me, uh, Drew McLeod and Eric Kemp, two brothers in Christ. They are from the provisionist perspective, and they have interacted uh, with a lot of my podcast material over the past few months. Um, I didn't really know who they were until somebody linked to a YouTube clip that had my name into in it, and uh, that's when I first started interacting with them. And this is the first time I've actually got to interact with them in person and invited them on to Understanding Christianity to have a friendly dialogue to discuss uh, provisionism, which I think is a lot of times misunderstood by my Reformed brothers and sisters. And so I want these two fine gentlemen to explain their position uh, we each have five questions that we're going to ask each other, and uh, hopefully we can learn to understand each other's positions and do it in a fun and cordial manner. So I welcome Drew and Eric to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. I'm excited. This is going to be fun. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, and I guess I'm just curious before we start out, how did you guys pick on me to start out with? I noticed like even on your second YouTube clip or second or third, somebody that, popped in and said, you know, I saw my face <laughs> on there and I'm like, what, what in the world is this? So how did you guys find out about me? That would be my fault. Um, <laughs> so what happened was, is there was a, a brother, uh, we're in a discussion group called uh, Debating Theology. And then it's like uh, Calvinists, Arminians, uh, Molinists, and Open Theists. I call it uh, DT Camo for short. Um, <laughs> this is the long story that you didn't ask for. But um, and a, a, a gentleman named brother named Robert, and I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly, Gitau, uh posted uh, a critique of yours or a response of yours, and he he just said I'm interested in what some of you, some of the provisionists think about this. And so I listened to it and I commented a few different things and have been hounding him uh, and haven't got much response from him particularly yet. Um, but that just kind of resulted in me getting to know your podcast and kind of throwing some other episodes towards Eric's way. And then we just ended up responding as we were starting this thing off. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate you guys' um, demeanor and it's, it's encouraging to see you guys being fair and saying good things, even though we disagree on some theological points. So you guys we, ready to get started or do you have some more things you want to say as far as introduction? Uh, well, first I would just say that, you know, we really appreciate, you know, Eric's already done an episode with, with Leighton Flowers on how much mm -hmm. we appreciate you really attempting to represent us well. I think that's really rare from what we've seen. Uh, I think that I can pretty confidently say, Eric, I don't know that, that Sean is one of the only uh, you know, leaders in the Calvinist community online or whatever that seems to be really attempting to to yeah. uh, understand our position. So we, I mean, we really appreciate that. Yeah, the so. first time I uh, heard of you, Sean, and it was your interactions with Leighton on Soteriology 101. I think, did you, you had a dialogue with him, isn't that right? Oh, I've, yeah, way back in 2015, we started That's, interacting. That was when I first heard of you. And, yeah. and so it was kind of, even from back then, I was like, oh, well, you know, Sean Cole is one of the only ones. This is five years ago. Sean Cole is one of the only ones that it seems to be dialoguing sincerely and fairly. Uh, right. And lo, they still end up disagreeing at the end of the dialogue, but they were cordial and, and right. you know, treated each other with respect. And wow, this is amazing. And then there wasn't really any continued dialogue between the two of you, uh, much to my chagrin. But then when we started doing this, you were already on my mind as somebody who I wanted to engage with because sure. I thought it would be fruitful. We, uh, sure. we started this uh, podcast and then uh, realized that uh, even more so than we already knew, the internet is a rough place and we didn't really enjoy uh, the interactions we were having on the internet. And so our second and our third episodes are responding <laughs> to you. So we were like, let's, let's get this going right away because this is one where we yeah. think it might be fruitful and actually come to yeah. something. And, and here we are. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, it's one of those things. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Drew. I didn't want to. No, you go ahead, Sean. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to let Eric introduce himself and say a little bit about himself. And then I would, I would follow that yeah. up. But um... yeah, go, yeah, that'd be great. Go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah, my name is Eric Kemp. I am, I, I, don't, I don't have like a, uh, let's look. My name is Eric Kemp and I have a Master of Divinity from Talbot School of Theology 
And so I've been uh, studying theology for quite some time. Uh, I am still in the, I guess, business world and hoping to one day transition to the uh, vocational pastoral world uh, in the meantime. And in this COVID limbo, uh, we're, we started this podcast, uh, and it's something that I'm passionate about. Uh, you know, provision, what we call now provisionism um, has been uh, a theological hobby of mine for, for coming on five years now. So uh, it's, it's a uh, joy and a pleasure to be creating this podcast uh, with Drew and having uh, interaction with, with brothers like Sean. So that's a little bit about me. Are you from California? I am from California. I recently this year in uh, April, right in the middle of the pandemic, right at the beginning of it, uh, moved to Texas. Okay. It was a fantastic choice. No, it's been good. It's been good. Uh, pandemic notwithstanding. Uh, but yeah, we're, I'm in uh, Texas now. Good. All right. Yeah. And, and I'm Drew McLeod. Uh, I live in New Zealand uh, with my wife, who's a Kiwi. Um, so this is, uh, you know, it's difficult to get out here at the right, right times and stuff. And Eric and I have to coordinate that. So this took a little bit of setting up. But um, my wife and I work in uh, university student ministry here in the town that we live in. Um, so I guess I technically am in the vocational you know, ministry aspect of things. But I'm also, I think, educationally just a lay person. I'm, I'm just self-read on this stuff. And, you know, I have theology, theology books and stuff like that. Uh, but I don't have uh, I have a degree in Spanish <laughs> with teaching and stuff. Uh, but uh, and I really love languages and traveling. I've lived in some different places. So this is now the the third uh, country that I've lived in for uh, fourth country that I've lived in for for more than a year. So Google uh, for your listeners, uh, everybody out there, well, when you get a chance, Google polyglot, polyglot. And that's what Drew is. A polyglot. Yeah. So they so, tell me. So weren't the COVID restrictions pretty heavy in New Zealand? They were very heavy initially, yes. Uh, but the benefit of being a small island nation was that they were able to ramp them up pretty high. And um, and then COVID is is gone from New Zealand now. So we're we're pretty That's much great. back to normal life, except for the fact that we have a newborn. Well, I guess she's not newborn now, but um, that can't see her grandparents and stuff because they can't come over here and yeah. stuff. And that was, she was born right in the middle of lockdown and that's just a whole another story and yeah, stuff. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's where we're at right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say, I really enjoyed your message on Psalm 4610. I think it was about being still, I listened to that and it was really, I could tell your pastoral care just for your congregation there and what they're going through and what everybody's going through. And it, it spoke to me. I really enjoyed it. So, um, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Those were back during the tough times. I think that was in April when I was strictly doing Mm, live stream. So yeah. 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 Mm. Well, good. Well, um, since you guys are my guests and I know that provisionism is highly misunderstood by a lot of my reformed brothers and sisters, and they tend to label you as our mutual friend would call the boogeyman, <laughs> the boogeyman of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. Now, I've tried not to do that because I understand your view and the nature of how you understand grace. But just for the sake of my audience, let's just throw it out there. Please explain to my Reformed brothers and sisters why provisionism is neither Pelagianism nor semi-Pelagianism. And I think my view, I think I think my listeners and viewers would probably understand those terms. But if you want to define those, however you guys want to answer that question, I throw it out there too. Well, first, I want to say we appreciate your acknowledgement that, uh, and and you are really. We keep saying this because it's just it's true, and we hope to maybe like a little. Uh, shame other Calvinists with podcasts that are listening a little bit. That you, yeah. you, we keep saying this, we're going to keep harping on it. You are really the first to understand this. That if you try to understand provisionism in the Pelagian versus Augustine paradigm, you're going to have a really difficult time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not operating under those same presuppositions. We aren't attempting to argue for or against infant baptism, uh, which is a, what the original theological food fight was about. We're not trying to argue against. Uh, or defend Roman Catholicism, which, which is you know what Augustine was trying to defend. Uh, so so that that whole paradigm is not really helpful for this. Uh, and, and most of the time, uh, Pelagian or semi-Pelagianism uh, is used as a uh, a boogeyman. But I think what it's really used for is code for well, you're not reformed, or code for you're anti-Augustinian. 
And that's true. Uh, I am anti-Augustinian. Uh, so, so that's right. But that uh, doesn't say anything else except you're anti-Augustinian. Uh, so you can call us Pelagian if you would like. Our request to your listeners would just be to then ask the, ask the question, how are we wrong, though? Uh, if you call us that label, okay, fine. Uh, but then show us from the Bible, which we all agree is our standard, uh, how we are unbiblical. Uh, mm. And so I'm going to do what Pelagius himself did. And I am going to oppose uh, the unbiblical teaching of post 410 Augustine. So again, I'm anti-Augustinian. So Pelagius was right to oppose post 14 Augustine and the stance he took to defend ancient baptism. So I think that Pelagian was right about Pelagius was right about that. And so I'm going to do that, but I'm also going to do something that Pelagius did, which was, and he did this at the Synod of Jerusalem in 415 AD, uh, Pelagius anathematized Pelagianism. Uh, he, he, when put to the question, Pelagius denied believing in and teaching the ism that was given his name and was found innocent by the bishops there in, in 415. And it wasn't until 418 after Augustine succeeded in putting a, a but and a lot of the other bishops uh, succeeded in putting a, a ton of pressure on Pope uh, Zosimus, Zosimus, I think is how you'd say it, at the Council of Carthage, that Pelagius was condemned as a heretic in absentia. So he wasn't even there. Right. Uh, and then the historical record is just silent about Pelagius after that. We know nothing about him uh, after 418. So likewise, I deny Pelagianism, uh, that uh, you don't need some sort of grace or uh, so this deistic view of grace where you know God gave us all we need and he kind of just sits back and we do whatever, uh, that there's no grace necessary in salvation. Deny that completely, just like Pelagius did. While at the same time, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, disagree with Augustine as well. So that's my my answer to that. Uh, Drew, if you have something else. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I don't really have anything else to add except the fact that um, I mean, I don't want to be you know too polemic or whatever to some people or whatever, but. I guess I would just add some people should know better by now. Like it's a little bit ridiculous <laughs> that this is still coming up. I mean, this came up uh, from, from the other side of the aisle from Brian Abishano the other day. And I was like, what, really? like oh, really? what is going mm -hmm. on? Like there's yeah. a, there's an article on Centrology 101's website. He responded to Brian Abishano and I read up there and I was like, man, this is, I feel like this is really disappointing. But anyways, uh, so yeah, we're, we, we're not, or not any of that. So, 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 yeah. So let me just kind of back, let me kind of back that up a little bit and say, and I think I said this on my previous podcast, every evangelical believes in some type of prevenient grace. The yeah. question yeah. is not, so the, the issue, the point of contention is not, is grace necessary? The question is what is the nature of the grace? Right. How do you define that grace? And traditionally the Arminian and the Calvinist have started at the same point of total depravity, total inability. And that there needs to be some type of, of indwelling, supernatural, mystical, whatever word you want to use, grace, in addition to the mere gospel appeal. So tell me, just in a nutshell, what's the provisionist view of grace? What is saving grace? What is the grace necessary and sufficient for a person to come to faith in Christ? Because I think that's where you guys really stand apart from the two camps of traditionalism or from traditional Arminianism and Reformed theology. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I can start this time. Um, I, you know, like Eric was saying earlier, we, uh, I mean, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but provisionism is connected to the traditionalist statement of faith and traditionalism. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that and, and Southern Baptist heritage is largely divorced from the reformed kind of roots of the whole Arminianism, Calvinism uh, debate. And so I think, I think that was another thing Eric was saying is just not coming at it from that perspective. And so we, we affirm depravity and we affirm that it's total, but when you say total depravity, that's a specific uh, doctrine that entails a lot of different stuff that, um, that we don't affirm, uh, okay. which, but um 
I have some notes here. So if I just keep looking off to the well, side, me, that's, yeah, that's what I'm that's, looking at. I so. think that's my, I think that's my second question, but I, I want to be fair to maybe you guys ask me a question. How, how I don't know if we want to do all five questions at once or just, yeah, yeah. That's forth. a good question. Do we want to alternate back and forth, Eric? What do you think is the best? Uh, no, he can, we can go first. He can ask us his questions first. I mean, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, just that's guys the time. yeah. Okay. So I kind of led to that, that in reform theology and even in Arminianism, there's the view of, of total depravity and total inability. There's a distinct, we make a distinction between the two. But I want my listeners to understand the provisionism view of the effects of the fall on humans. So, you know, basically how pervasive are the effects of the fall? What has and hasn't been lost in the fall? Your view on original sin, inherited guilt, just kind of unpack to me your view of I'm sure you're probably going to deny total inability, but tell me just your view of depravity, sin, then what effects have the fall have in your theology? Go ahead, Eric. Uh, yeah. And, and you're right that this is the number one uh, departure for us between the Calvinist Arminians. And, and I, this is a great place to start uh, after we get the whole Pelagius thing out of the way. This is a great place to start because this, this is the crux of, of all of it really. And, and, I think that uh, for me, uh, once I was able to uh, look outside of total inability, total depravity, uh, then I really went in the other direction from from reformed theology. So, uh, which I had kind of in you know uh, as I started studying theology in my early twenties, that was the perspective I was given. I was given kind of the reformed theology perspective, even though I didn't know that's what it was called at the time. Um, and it wasn't until I encountered some of this stuff that I kind of started going in a different direction. So, uh, I think that the question of, uh, even the way that the question is asked, you know, how pervasive is, is sin, uh, even that kind of question, uh, in regards to human nature assumes the kind of the Augustinian view that sin is, um, some sort of substance. It's a something that's passed down from us, from our, from our parents, passed down to us from our parents. And, uh, and I would say my answer to that would be, well, the pervasiveness of sin depends on how much an individual has sinned. If, if sin isn't this thing that's passed down from our parents, then how pervasive it is, is a product of my own sin, how pervasive I've caused it to be in, uh, on my own soul. Uh, and so what the fall is, is separation and enmity with God. And nowhere, this isn't, I guess this is a negative case and we'll try to make a positive cases as much as possible, but just, I think this is a, this is a point in our favor is that nowhere in the Bible does the, is it described that humanity has lost the ability to respond positively to God, which is, you know, total inability, total depravity. That's kind of what that means. And so we reject both of those ideas that there is some sort of forensic sin passed down to us from our parents and that humanity is totally unable to, to respond to God while at the same time we refer, we affirm weakness towards and a bent towards sin. And, and especially you're, you're raised in families. Uh, you know, you guys are both vocational pastor, pastoral ministry, you know, your people are raised in sinful families. They are taught to sin from birth, uh, a sinful culture, we're raised in these things. We are taught to sin. And so uh, we are, we are born up in sin in, in that, uh, in that regard. Uh, so that's kind of where we see uh, sin coming in uh, and, and what sin is. Drew. Yeah. And I would just say, uh, you know, I agree with all of that. I would say to your listeners, we do have a couple of episodes on this. I would, I would recommend the, um, original sin episode. Uh, if you go on our either podcast or YouTube channel and look that up, we, we talk about that. And I think, I think one of the main differences, uh, and this is kind of, you know, we're going to throw some stuff out there that could end up in a long discussion, but it's just meant to kind of give a little bit of a nugget about what we believe. And then you can kind of look that up on your own, but we would, we would all believe that, that, uh, each and every person inevitably sins and experiences their own personal fall in that regard. And so uh, I would say, and and I think th there's some nuances in the provisionist traditionalist camp. Um, I would say that uh, we have a weak 
nature that's inclined towards sin. I think the traditionalist statement uh, says something like a sinful nature. And just when I look up that word sinful uh, in the dictionary and I think about uh, my daughter or any baby, I, I guess I just struggle with the semantics of that word. But I'm happy to say that we're that we have something in our nature is weak such that each and every one of us inevitably sins and needs God's grace, needs God's grace and his salvation. So um, that's just my two cents on that. So. so let me ask a clarifying question. If the nature, if you want to use the word nature, inclination or bent or whatever word you're comfortable with, if it's just merely weak, um, what is there any hindrances that prevent you from understanding truth, responding positively, repenting, believing, is there any hindrance at all in your sin nature that has to be overcome? And if there is a hindrance, what is it that overcomes that? Yeah, not in an ontological sense, not in a, a okay. uh, how it is sense, uh, mm-hmm. more in a, in the way in which you've been taught to sin in the way that you've sinned. And I, and I know that this is one of your pretty poignant uh, specific questions to Dr. Flowers was if Dr. Flowers is saying that uh, unbelievers have a lot to overcome in order to believe in Jesus, but there is no total inability. What are they overcoming? Uh, and yeah, they're, they're on the Calvinism Arminianism paradigm. I can completely understand that question. What, what are they over? What are they overcoming? But trying to step outside of that paradigm and and notice that we don't we're not saying that there's some ontological nature. There isn't an ontological barrier to believing in truth. There's only the barrier of the soil, the barrier of the soil of your soul, the soil of your culture, the soil of your family. There's all those barriers that you have put on yourself to believing in Jesus. And, and so, no, there isn't an inability of your nature or your soul from the fall. Uh, you can, uh, but yeah, it's probably really difficult for a lot of people. Uh, and at least some difficulty for all of us. Uh, so let me, so let me yeah. ask you a question to see if you affirm this. So I think this is what Leighton Flowers would affirm. The inability, like you would say, is maybe not ontological, but the inability is that you haven't heard the gospel message yet. And you're not able to believe in what you haven't heard. Once the gospel appeal is given, that gospel appeal gives the ability or enables a response. Um, and so when you use the word enable, you guys may not use it. I'm, I'm more familiar with his terminology. But if the gospel appeal enables a response, it assumes there's some type of inability there that needs to be enabled. Just the semantic mm-hmm. use of the word enabling. Would you guys use the word enable? And if you do, what, what's it enabling? And what was unable there before that the gospel is enabling now? That would be really helpful to, to my listeners, I think. Yeah, I think well, we talked about this in a response to one of your um, episodes as we were talking about John 6, because there's the uh, John six sixty five, I think it is, that says, uh, where Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come unless it's been granted. Or in the NIV, I think is the one that says enabled. Um, and the word there is just give unless it's been given to them. Um, and it's commonly understood that he's referring back to John six forty four, which is uh, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. Uh, so we would say that the drawing, enabling, giving, granting is essentially the same thing. Um, and I think, you know, I'm really glad for these dialogues because they do help push us to, to gain some clarity, even in our own thinking on this. And I think that I've gotten to a stage with regards to John six, and this is a this is a long uh, discussion. We're just kind of attempting to give little tit- tidbits on this, but um, John, you know, John six is him addressing people that were coming to him for food, uh, and not for spiritual food. So he tells this parable about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and different stuff uh, in order to uh, basically send off a whole lot of people. And these were people who were not listening and learning from the father, from Yahweh uh, previously, which is in John six forty five, right after that. And so I guess I would say that 
it's difficult because when, when you're asking like, what is this enabling? I want to ask, well, what scriptures are we specifically talking about? You know, I don't want to make necessarily a general, you know, a sweeping sure. claim or whatever, but as far as that, it seems to me that there's this first century thing going on of a blinding and keeping out of a number of different, uh, of the Jews who were not listening to and following Yahweh um, such that then Jesus needed to draw them at a later stage, which then we would, we would say in John 12, uh, 32, that he says, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw or drag. I'm actually okay with drag. Uh, I don't know if Eric likes that as much. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I guess I would just say that that's the enabling that that's talking about. Um, and then there's the John, there's the Romans 10 passage that, that there is a enlightenment that the gospel and revelation brings that is necessary for us to believe. So in that sense, it's an, it's an enabling or a granting. Uh, but I, I guess, um, I don't know, Eric, do you want to, you want to springboard off of that? No, those are the two that often come up. And I think, yeah, the Romans 10, one is, you know, how can they, how can they believe in what they haven't heard and how can they hear if people don't preach? So, so yeah, there, it is enabled in that sense. Uh, and then, and then the dichotomy between light and sight, right. Uh, that I think that's really helpful too, that they need more light, uh, but they have enough sight, uh, and, and the sight gets into the weeds and it's what we've already been talking about with how much have you sinned and how darkened have you have, how much have you darkened your own eyes and all that. But, but that they, people do need light, uh, else they cannot see. And maybe this will help, maybe this will help your listeners a little bit because the, the same word that's enabled or or given or granted, uh, enabled I guess carries this baggage of like well if it says enabled then there's some kind of inability right so then you just basically affirm total inability but you don't want to admit that you do or something like that. Um, but there's the passage in Philippians one twenty nine I think it is that says uh, not only have you been granted or given to believe uh, but also to suffer for His name and so that. In that same sense, so we would say that passage is talking to the Gentiles and it's saying not only has the door been opened, has it been granted, given to you to believe, but you've also been given to be able to willingly suffer for his name. And so I guess uh, when it comes to the word like using enable specifically, maybe that can be a little bit, um, sure. you know, misleading or whatever, I guess. Well, so. Yeah, this is helpful for me because when when you guys say there's no ontological nature of sin in the human soul you're, you're talking a different language than what arminians and, and reformed people are, are used exactly. to talking exactly. and, that's, and, that's, know, and that's why and i'm and i'm trying to help bring some clarity on my side to say that you know that that's code word for oh bogeyman you know palladianism right. so i'm not saying sure. you guys are i'm saying when you guys yeah. use terms like that that's why People are saying, now, wait a minute, if you if you deny, because basically what you, if I understand you correctly, Eric, you're saying that really our sin is from our own product of our own environment. You have to be taught. You're not born in a state of, you I would wouldn't say, say we're born in a state of neutrality, would you? But we're born in a state of, like we're a blank slate and we can learn to sin based upon our environment or, you know, like, why do you sin? I would say that. Like it, backing it's a, it all the way up. What, what yeah, causes yeah. you to commit individual sins? I think. First, I would say that sin, sin is self-caused uh, and and created by the agent, um, him or herself. And then uh, I would also add that, uh, you know, back to the first question about Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism. Again, for the listeners who are going to be a little bit more skeptical here, Pelagianism and semi-Pelagian have specific definitions. Sure. Pelagianism, it means that you're born a completely and totally neutral and you can basically work your way to God without any kind of initiatory grace uh, at all. And then semi-Pelagianism is basically saying that um, I think it's like a, like there is a corruption, but that man can initiate with God first, like he can be the initiator. And so both of those things we completely deny. Um, again, maybe you could call us semi, semi-Pelagian. <laughs> we don't, again, we don't really uh, much care about the labels we just want sure. to talk about the scriptures well, we're still, still well, scripture guys but yeah well let me ask you a biblical, yeah let me ask you a biblical question let's 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 take the pelagianism let's mm. let's kind of leave that out there because do you make a distinction between sins plural and sin singular the way that's the, a great like, question how, how do you understand that because the bible talks about sin 
singular and sins plural. And if, if there's a singular and a plural, you have to biblically deal with what, what's the difference between those two? Are they the same or is there a difference? I think that whatever biblical evidence you're talking about is you can see that in a, in terms of a world system, a cultural system, a family system that you are taught how to do this. And, and here's why I'm drawing this line. Uh, I completely understand the, where the, that thought process goes when somebody says ontological, there's no ontological sin. There's no ontological barrier. There's no ontological ability. And whoa, 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 what are you trying to say? <laughs> I, I, I completely understand that because then the mind goes in this direction. But let me tell you where my mind's and, and, and Drew can, here's where my, my mind goes. If, if I say that there's an ontological sin nature, then I go to Jesus Christ and I go, okay, well, wait a minute then. Does that mean he wasn't really human? Uh, if he was not like us in every respect, uh, like Hebrews would have it, uh, like Athanasius would have it, that what he didn't uh, assume he did not redeem, right? That kind of idea that he was, was like Gregory, us in every Gregory hmm? of Nyssa, I think it was Gregory. It was. Okay. Yeah. All right. You, I, I, believe, I believe you. I believe you. Google Gregory, us. That, that this, this idea that uh, if he, he was like us in every respect, yet without sin, well, how is he like us in every respect uh, if he didn't have a sin nature? And if he was like us in every respect, are you saying that Jesus had a sin nature? So that's where my mind goes, and I count that one as worse than the other. I go, I'm going to take all the biblical evidence of sin, singular, and go, well, I can explain that as a world system, a family system, something that we're born into, something that we're taught how to do, and then we do it, sins, uh, plural. Uh, and I can stay away from the ontological stuff because of all the problems that come with it. So with, the, with those sins that you're born into, it'd be a cumulative of all the sins that were committed before that are systemic. Yeah, you're, that your parents are committing, that the, your culture is, is committing. I'm sure we could, you know, come up with all kinds of examples in the ancient world and, and in the, the current world, how we are born into and taught in these systems that we don't even know any different. We, we, and yet... It teaches us yeah. to sin. Well, this is helpful because I, I think sometimes this is why my Reformed friends falsely mislabel you guys. It's because they haven't dialogued to really hear what you're saying. And it's helpful for my audience to kind of get you to really explain, you know, your view on these things. So this is helping me understand your guys' view mm -hmm. a little bit better. And I think uh, I would just add real quick that... Um, I have a little blurb here, which I'm not going to read or whatever, but uh, from what I understand, Paul, when he uses the word sin as a subject of a sentence, he's talking. So you asked, you asked, do you guys see a difference between sin and sins? So I would say when Paul uses the word sin as the subject of a sentence, like he does in Romans five and in Romans seven, I think that he's talking about the, the sin nature, the nature of, uh, the weak nature or whatever you want to call it again, for semantic reasons, I don't really like saying sinful nature because I don't think that my daughter and that babies and stuff are born sinful. Um, but, um, yeah, so that, so I just wanted to add that a uh, little tidbit in there, but that's just my, so let me ask you the, the opposite. If, if she's not born sinful, then what's her condition at birth? How would you, how would you define that? Yeah. We and again, I would refer to your listeners to, to our longer treatment on this in the original sin episode. But okay. I would say that she's Definitely. innocent, um, and I would say that she's, I would say that she's pure in the sense that she does not have any sin. But then again, we're following that up with, and and I think here's a question that we can all ask ourselves, right? That none of us have the answer to. Why did Adam and Eve sin? None of us know, right? They were created good, they were created pure, and yet they sinned. Um, and so, and so we're following this up with, even though every person is born pure and pure and innocent, every baby child conceived is pure and innocent and without sin, for some reason, they have this propensity, this inclination, this weakness that inevitably results in a personal fall. And, uh, I think this is illustrated by Paul when he says in Romans seven, 
I think it's verse four or nine or something. Read all of Romans chapter seven, listeners, <laughs> and find it. Yeah. Uh, he says, um, when I send, hold on, actually, I'm just going to pull it up because I don't want to butcher this. and I want to quote it right. And while you're pulling that up, I'm not going to rebut you guys because I, I have a lot of thoughts going through. Sure. Is, oh, I, don't yeah. want, I don't want this to turn into a debate. I want you guys just to give your view you know, uninterrupted so that my yeah. listeners can judge. And I may do a follow-up podcast or interview. I have to process, but. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, good. So, no, and, so, and, and, and we probably will too. Yeah, hopefully this is the the start of something, you know, yeah, not yeah. the only thing we do. So, yeah. 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 So Romans 7, uh, Romans 7 verse 9 uh, says, and, and so this is my question. This is a question for you that you don't have to answer now, but just for sure. reflection for your listeners. Uh, he says, uh, once I was alive apart from the law, and the law there meaning the conscience, the, the law that's written on the conscience. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. So he said I was, and the way that I understand this is that there was some stage in Paul's life, presumably when he was quite young, that he was alive. That's what he says. He was alive without the law, and the law and the commandment came in a mature conscience, and so sin, when he, when that law came and he perceived with a mature conscience, I should do this or I should not do this and then didn't do it, then sin springs to life and he dies and is spiritually separated from God. And so this is a, this is a text that I would say speaks to the, to the, you've heard of uh, that most kind of traditionalist provisionists affirm is the age of accountability. Uh, and that's where I think each person experiences their own, I like to call it not speaking for Eric or anyone else, like their own personal fall. So yeah, I've never heard the age of accountability as a personal fall. I've always just heard it as the age where a person's morally held accountable for those sins. Yeah. That, and I guess, that, yeah. and I guess when I say personal fall, I mean, I mean this, like Paul says he was alive and then he was dead. And in the same sense that Adam was alive, he was spiritually alive and then he sinned against God and then he was dead. That's what we call the fall. So uh, do with it what you will. People may not like that terminology. Okay, so, kind of I... so let me let me just re- let me just ask that again. So what you're saying is that each individual, at some point, not a definitive age like seven or five or whatever, right, But at right. some point early in life, they experience their own fall, like Adam did. I would. I mean. Again, like, I don't. I'm not sure that I like to say like Adam did because of okay. the connotations that that ensues. And I recognize that we have a radically different. We're in a radically different situation to Adam. I mean, sure. we all know that and recognize that. But um, I would say that each each person. Uh, it seems to me, based on reading this passage, when Paul talks about being alive and then he's dead, is born underneath grace and innocent. And at some stage experiences spiritual death and then is held accountable for their uh, sins and needs the grace of God. So um, and it's when they commit, it's when they commit their first personal sin. I would when they, when, when their conscience is mature enough to understand the law that's written on their heart and they transgress against that, okay. you know, I mean, I think we see young children that, that know that they shouldn't do something in the sense right. that it will displease their parents or something, but there's not an awareness sure. of yeah you know, the yeah. conscience. So good. 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 Well, let's shift from total depravity, sin, ontological nature to the issue of uh, predestination, because that's a big issue that divides the house. You know, there's the reformed unconditional election unto salvation. There's the Arminian conditional election unto salvation based upon God's foreknowledge. And then there's the corporate view of election which I've argued is fairly new um, in evangelical circles. Um, I trace it back to Karl Barth's influence on Herschel Hobbes and his influence. And you can go back and hear my thoughts on that. But would you guys just explain to me, you know, in a nutshell, what, what does your view of the doctrine of predestination election look like? I'm assuming it's corporate. Um, what's your main exegetical text or text to come to the conclusion of the corporate view of election. Uh, so w- responding directly to the unconditional election to individual salvation, I hope just to uh, let your listeners know that the main reason at the, uh, we're going to get into this more and I, I definitely don't mean this to be the only answer, but just the main reason we 
do not hold to that view is because we don't see it taught anywhere in the Bible. And that our motivation is to teach only what's in the Bible, as I know that's what your motivation is. Sure. And so that, so yeah, we reject that view because we don't see it anywhere. And um, the, we do hold the corporate election. Uh, there are differing views in exactly uh, you know, uh, what that means, but at the Bible, we see always the Bible in, with predestination is either electing individuals and groups to service or groups to spiritual blessings and purpose. Uh, the Bible never depicts individuals as being chosen by God for salvation and eternity past. And even the election of individuals for service is for the blessing and inclusion of outsiders, specifically Gentiles, really, and never to the exclusion of others. So we think of election as I choose you, I don't choose you, or unconditional election from individual salvation, I choose you, I don't choose you. We see election as I choose you for the others. I choose you for the outsiders, for the for their blessing and for their inclusion, not for their exclusion. Uh, for the exegetical reasons, I turn to Drew. <laughs> Um, so at, at the risk of sounding a little bit snarky, our, our main exegetical reasons for believing in corporate election are Romans 9 and Ephesians 1, <laughs> which obviously you guys believe teach, teaches uh, pre-creation, pre unconditional election unto salvation. Um, and I think that, again, this is an overview, but, uh, and I think that in brief, my main exegetical reasons for this are, for instance, with Romans 9. If you look at most of the Old Testament passages that are cited there, and I actually listened to your, uh, Sean, your response to this, um, I guess it's been three years ago or so, just before that uh, episode with um, where you were responding to Eric Hankins. Um, and you, you touched on this a little bit, but 80%, um, so you've got Genesis 25, verse 23, Malachi, um, chapter one verses two to five that's you know kind of context um and you've got what is arguably a reference to jeremiah 18 1 to 10 ish uh and then you've got essentially a snippet of the narrative between uh, exodus 32 and 33 and so with those four all four of those are corporate as far as i can tell and i think and i think you acknowledge this uh, in your um in your response to corporate election, but uh, obviously our reformed Calvinistic brethren would affirm something like an apostolic uh, interpretation where Paul is using kind of these Old Testament passages to bring to light this unconditional uh, election view. And so that's my um, exegetical reasons uh, just in brief. And I think uh, Ephesians 1 reflects some, some corporate thinking with regards to the us as, as well as a, a sort of bird's eye view of Jesus being the elect, the primary elect and chosen one uh, that we are. And I just have this passage here in Galatians 3 um, for you and for your listeners. So it's Galatians 3 verse 27. Uh, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no G Jew nor or Greek slave or free male and female since you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed heirs according to the promise. So we would say at the moment of belief, uh, the Holy Spirit baptizes us or immerses us into the body of Christ. And we are in Christ with him, the chosen one, and therefore chosen along with him and, and all of the blessings that he has. So that's kind of my brief. I've tried to understand your view and hopefully accurately reflect it. I guess my question for you is in Ephesians 1 three through 14, which is one big long sentence in the Greek text, the longest sentence I think Paul wrote. My question is, it's sometimes I think you guys go down to verse 13 and 14 and say, when you have faith is when you're included into Christ. Why do you guys, um, and this may be an unfair way to ask it, why do you guys read that backwards? <laughs> why do you guys go down to 13 yeah. as opposed to following the flow of thought where Paul verse four, five, election, predestination, then go down to verse 13 yeah. and pop back up. I have, into a, that. I have Just, a follow up question, Sean. Yeah. Why do you start with verse three? And I, you know, we're just messing around or whatever, but um, 
so we would say that um, in ver in the first few verses that it identifies the us as the faithful. So when you're talking about us, me, you know, it's talking about the faithful. And then it also uses that phrase in Christ Jesus. And you know this and your listeners will know this uh, in Christ Jesus in Jesus is used prolifically throughout mm -hmm. Ephesians one. And I would just say that um, I'm not as committed to the, hey, let's look at verse 13 and verse 14. I'm asking the question, when was it that we were in Christ? And what can we look in the rest of the Pauline, you know, and God breathed literature on that subject? And I think, for instance, that passage in Galatians 3, 27. Um, and I think the the challenge for the for the Calvinist in this regard is that he or she must believe that we were that we were somehow, and, and I've heard you talk a little bit about this, somehow we were in Christ before the foundation of the world. Or they'll say something like, well, we weren't in Christ, uh, you know, it's in Christ in time, but from an everlasting or eternal perspective, you know, we were not in Christ or whatever, or we, or we were already in Christ from an eternal perspective, but then in time we get placed into Christ right. and stuff. Right. And so I find that to be, um, you know, not speculative or whatever, but a little bit ad hoc, a little bit like, Hey, by the way, if you think about it this way, um, this is, right. so this is how point, we see it. Right. So the point of contention would be at what point is a, is a person placed in Christ? That's exactly that would be, right. And that would be when, and so there would be different views you know, the reform view, you're in, in God's mind, you're in Christ before the foundation of the world. At a point in time, you're included in Christ through regeneration. You guys would probably say the point in time that you're in Christ is when you have faith, you're placed in Christ. And that would be the, the, the initiate, the, the initial time. I mean, yeah, still, what, what, still abide in Christ, but that, that, I think right. that's the point of contention that we would say is when is a person placed in Christ? Right. Right. And the part that is chosen, what God's choice was, is that there would be this believing ones, faithful ones in Christ ones. And that Ephesians one is saying those, those faithful ones, because he starts out right, you know, right in verse one of the faithful ones, those who are in Christ chosen in Christ, meaning there's this group before the foundation of the world that was chosen to, to exist. And uh, God's choice was always what he was going to give that group. What spiritual blessings in the heavenly places was he going to give that group inheritance uh, and the ways that he talks about this, this blessing, he was going to give this group the blessing. He always was going to do that. Uh, but that doesn't mean he's going to uh, choose which individuals are going to be in right. that group from eternity past. Yep. And you did encapsulate this pretty well in, in one of the very first responses that we did to you was that it's a, it is that it is a plan, um, you know, for this group. Uh, but, and then I would also emphasize it's, it's all centered around the elect one, uh, Jesus. So, uh, to, to, to hedge against all of the man centered, <laughs> you know, sort of responses that we might right. but to, but to use, just kind of help my listeners to use our terminology, it would still be conditional because it's conditioned sure. to get into yeah. the group. It's conditioned upon your yeah. free response of faith. Yeah. You, yes. you have to choose to get in. Once you personally choose, you're included in that elect group that God had planned to exist before time. And then the nuance that I would add is that you, you in your heart, however this looks, you know, the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector says it looks something like God have mercy on me, a sinner. So at that God takes us, however, this looks spiritually speaking, I don't know, but the spirit then baptizes us into Christ and then we're into Christ. So it's not like we choose to get in him. Right. It's we, God have mercy on me. And then he, right dunks right, us so to right. speak permanently uh into christ right. so yeah it's not <clears throat> it's not it's 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 not a um <laughs> yeah I, I think sometimes you guys get unfairly labeled where faith becomes a work or a merit and i don't like to have those arguments because i don't think anybody you're saying i cry out to jesus and in response to me crying out for for salvation god is the one that includes me i don't include myself i don't work myself yes. in it all i yeah. did was admit my need and then God, by grace, put me into Christ. And, and you can call that monergism, right? That God yeah. monergistically, one worker takes us and right. and and dunks us in Christ. Right. Yeah. And, and a good reform would say, in response to your, in response <laughs> in, to your, in, resp in response to us, which was a response to all of the drawing and initiation that He's done throughout our life. So right. so it, it's a right. it's a response to a response to a response that God right. planned. 
from before creation to be. (laughs) Right. Which goes, which goes back to the nature of grace. How does that grace work out? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you guys um, the next question. Um, If you could critique one major tenet of reform theology, maybe you've already done that, but just if you could critique it, what would be the big one that you would critique and say, Hey, you know, this is our biggest issue with reform theology. This is why we're not reformed. This is our drumbeat. You know, this is, this is our biggest critique. What, what would that be? Uh, for me, it would be total inability. I think the entire, all five points, whether you're a two pointer, three pointer, or five pointer, all of them rest, I think on total inability and that there is no passage that directly didactically teaches this inability. In fact, I think there are lots of biblical problems. It makes Cornelius uh, and him being, he's never even heard the gospel. He's never even heard of Jesus. Uh, It's very clear as Peter comes and preaches to him that he does not have the Holy Spirit because he gains the Holy Spirit right in front of Peter, much to Peter's shock. Uh, And that uh, Cornelius was a God fearer and that he uh, not only made alms uh, to Yahweh, but Yahweh heard that and and it rose as a fragrant aroma to Yahweh to hear this Gentile uh, worship him and follow his, his law. Uh, so there's, there's lots of uh, patch, passages that create a problem when we look at total inability. And, and the reason it's my drumbeat, the reason it's my drumbeat is because if you say that human beings are totally unable, then in my view, that removes uh, moral responsibility, humans' moral responsibility for sin, and then it takes that moral responsibility and places it on God. Uh, and that's a no-go zone for me. Uh, that is a rabbit trail of epic proportions for the last 500 years. I realize that, but just overview, that's where that goes for me is it removes man's responsibility and places it on God. And I just, I can't have that. Yeah. And, I, and I would say, I've said from the very beginning, the biggest issue that the provisionists or traditionalists have is a denial of total inability. People can get that as the starting point. A lot of other things in your theology make sense. So Drew, what would you say is your biggest critique? Yeah, I've been thinking about this, uh, too. And it's it's kind of unfair, I feel like, because, you know, Eric's given his response and then my response is different from his. And then I have two responses that are like first equal that I couldn't choose between. (laughs) So you're getting three, three responses. That's fine. But I think that the, the assertion from most reformed folks and especially the reformed confessions that everything is eternally immutably predestined to only work out one way prior to creation is a significant problem. So, you know, when Eric said, as far as the, the total uh, depravity kind of puts that back on God, I would say the divine decree mm-hmm. uh, is, is a huge problem, obviously from my provisionist perspective. Um, <laughs> You're fired. And uh, <laughs> you can't fire me. <laughs> this is, this is uh, equal shares. Um, anyways. So, um, and then, and then I would just say, and the reason why I think that's a problem not only because it has a uh, logical, you know, Im- Im- implicatory issues for God as being the author of sin, but I also just don't see it uh, in scripture, which we'll get into when we, when we ask you some of, some of our questions. Uh, but then my first equal to that is that I don't see uh, pre-creation individual election unto salvation anywhere. And I think that that's also a significant problem more so than, than limited atonement, which a lot of people I think have, have issue with. Um, and in fact, um, and we don't, we don't have to discuss this, but I've just always kind of wondered this and you quoted this, uh, in one of your episodes and, uh, many of our Calvinistic brethren do as proof for unconditional election. Um, and two, and two Thessalonians two 13, it says, but we ought to, to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and through belief in the truth. So to me, this is like the opposite, like this is conditional election. And so I've never really understood that. And I don't mean to like open a can of worms, but that's just what I had in my notes, you know, as far as like uh, one of my main uh, concerns uh you know, scripturally with, with sure. one of the major tenets sure. of Calvinism. So, well, um, that's good because I think those are the, I mean, so limited atonement is a secondary issue because it's really limited atonement. It's an argument against unconditional election. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's, sure. those are kind of tied together. So yeah. total inability, God's sovereign, immutable decree and 
predestination unconditionally before the foundation of the earth. Okay. That, those are three big ones. Yeah. And right, you can have, you can have sovereignty without the immutable decree. Right. You can have, you can have a God who is, uh, has the right of divine rule, which, you know, obviously Jew and I believe provisions believe in God is divinely ruling the universe right now. And you can have that without an immutable decree. From, right. Or, 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 or you would say that there would not be meticulous providence yes. also. Yeah. 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 And I guess, and I guess it depends on what you mean by that too, because actually up until uh, the past few years, I think, I think my view of providence has increased and my reformed brethren would, uh, and many other brethren would, would probably vehemently disagree with that. But I used to, I used to have issue with saying basically that God, um, I remember when I first encountered reformed theology, I, I sort of imagined this, uh, there's that passage that talks about, um, you know, no sparrow falls outside of your father's will. And so I imagine this kind of uh, sieve, you know, or colander or whatever, where God is choosing to permit individual things that he, you know, wants to happen or whatever, and that that's what happens. But now I would say that, that sovereignty for me means that out of everything that happens, God either determines it or permits it. So that, and, and I don't have a problem saying that, um, but that's, that's just my little that's good. Miniature hmm. rant on that. All right. Well, let me ask you guys the final question. If you could tell your reformed brothers and sisters one thing, limit it to one, how we can um, better understand provisionism. What can we do to better understand your view, not to mislabel you, not to call you things you're not. Uh, what would be your encouragement to us? How can, I guess the point is how can, I'm, I'm trying really hard to do it, but how can others yeah, that aren't, yeah. that aren't me listeners, other Calvinists, how, what's the one thing you would encourage us to help us better understand your view? And you can give two if you need to, but yeah, maybe. No, to sorry. Uh, I would say, you know, to your listeners, uh, just like you are, please, please, please just go, go to sertriology 101com go to our podcast and listen to our material take notes if you have to try to represent us in a way that we would agree with and seek to understand first and then bring critique. Not that you have to understand hundred percent of what we believe in order to bring critique because that uh, runs into its own problems. But I would just say, and, and then, and only then can you really decide between the two sociological views. When I first encountered reformed theology, I was like, well, I mean, I, I get this and I kind of see where they're coming from, but I know a lot of people that don't believe this. Is there something else on the other side that people have landed on? And then through my research, I kind of compared the two and, and did some uh, reading and stuff and came to, you know, pretty much where I'm at now. Uh, so that would be my main encouragement is just to, to get, to, to seek to understand and then, and look at our material firsthand and don't, you know, preferably response videos and stuff are good, but I would always just encourage going to the source. So. So you're saying God predestined you to be a provisionist. I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Immediately <laughs> no, predestined no, me to no, be a no. for his glory. I'm, I'm, just, yeah, I'm giving you a hard time. No, that's all right. Like that. yeah. yeah, the the original uh, brainstorm was uh, to call this podcast the Hubmeyer Hour after Balthazar Hubmeyer. Yeah. Uh, but that was so niche that uh, we decided uh, against it. Uh, but that's, if you want to go back to the Reformation, uh, who we, since we're not Arminians, since we're not Lutherans, since we're not Calvinists, what do we, where, where do you guys land? Uh, Balthazar, Hubmeyer, Anabaptists is kind of our, uh, our theological roots uh, where we trace it back to, to the Reformation. So we originally considered the Pelagian perspective, but, <laughs> but we thought that uh... we did not. <laughs> Just kidding. That would be awesome. You'd get a lot. Yeah. Probably get a lot more viewers. But... Yes. That's <laughs> We messed up, Drew. No. Dang it. We're good. Marketing, darn you. Well, you know, guys, this has been really beneficial for me. It's good to just let you guys speak. I mean, I could, I'm thinking about all the ways I can, like, okay, <laughs> we, need, we need to engage in a debate, but that's not really what yeah. the purpose of this. I think it's just sure, sure. for each of us to be able to hear our sides. And you guys probably know more about what Reformed theology believes than what Reformed people believe about or understand about provisionism. So, um, anytime we can build a bridge, um, because here's my here's my bottom line. I think we have way more in common 
then we have different, especially, I don't know if you guys are Southern Baptist or if what's your tribe, but um, at least within Baptistic, there's a whole lot of more battles out there. We're going to be fighting as the culture gets more crazy. Um, I'm getting ready to start a new Wednesday night Amen. series. Called, it's called Woke Christianity, Cancel Culture, and the Coming Persecution. Mm. So... Um, I'm going to be dealing with some Eric's issues. Eric's going to be tuning into that one. <laughs> oh, I'm down. So, I'm down. yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of things that we're going to have to stand together on and where soteriology issues may come to the sideline. They're fun dialogues right now, but there may come a day where it's like, okay, we're going to hold to just some dogma is what I consider and, and, and stand shoulder to shoulder because the culture is going to be coming at us hot. And, and they're we're, going to care less. They're going to care less about whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist or a provisionist that they're going to, yeah. To so. back you, to back you up and, and take it even stronger. We may have to partner with Catholics and Mormons uh, on, on some of these things. And now that doesn't mean we don't disagree with them. Then maybe that means we even disagree with them more and have more of those dialogues sure. between us. But the stuff that we, we share in common is going to have to be defended or they'll take us down one by one. So yeah. Yeah. Very good. 